0: Welcome to Bethlehem Church Online. I'm Pastor Matt. I'm so excited that you decided to join us for worship today. I hope the singing and preaching of God's Word is uplifting and it gives you just what you need. I'm not sure where you are in your relationship or your walk with the Lord, uh, but I want today to be a blessing. I want you to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that today is encouraging and that it's just what you need. If it's your first time, make sure to click the link in the post and fill out that form. We have a free gift for you following today's service. Thank you so much for joining us, and enjoy the service.
1: All right, good stuff. If you want to jump ahead real quick, we'll be spending most of our time in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to take your Bibles and turn there. So beyond that, just like he said, we've been in Exodus for like 21 weeks, it's been a long time. Um, and so kind of where we're getting to in that narrative is we're getting to where the law is being given at Mount Sinai or has been given rather, uh, the 10 words have been received and as the book develops and goes farther, uh, there's going to be even more. And if you know anything about old Testament law, you know, it's like really weird. So can we all agree on that? It's like some really weird, everybody's like, huh? Yep. Don't read that. Don't know that. Um, which is a totally normal response for, uh, you know, it's a culture that's very foreign to us. And because it's foreign to us, we look at it and we're confused and we draw conclusions that are maybe unhealthy. And so I was thinking about this this past week as I'm like, man, I really feel like we should talk about the law. Um, I really feel like, uh, you know, like there's a lot in the New Testament that really sheds some good light and clarity on the law and its purpose. And I was like, who better? to teach us about the law than the person who gave the law, and that's Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, um, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. And so, or the beginning of it, rather. It's really long. And just by way of introduction and reviewing where we've been thus far, the Israelites, you know, the people of Jacob, they multiplied and they were flourishing in the land of Egypt. And the Pharaoh thought that was a threat. You know, the, he looked at their their prosperity and was like, man, we got to do something about this, or or Egypt is going to be not Egypt anymore at some point. And so, you know, they they go through all this hardship, a couple hundred years of slavery in Egypt, and uh, it's just a really bad time for them. And uh, God sent a deliverer to them in the form of Moses, and Moses led the people out of Egypt after uh, Yahweh had done battle with the gods of Egypt through the plagues. And now the Israelites are on the other side of the Sea of Reeds. They've been delivered, they're looking for... Uh, They're gaining their identity as a people group, right? And if you know anything about the Jewish people, even today, uh, they're very proud of their heritage. They're very uh, in tune with where they come from, uh, for better or for worse. And so where they're at now in the narrative is they're now, like, they're receiving the covenant. They're receiving uh, uh, the words of the covenant from Yahweh at Mount Sinai. And that's going to look really different to us than maybe what we would expect uh, guidelines and rules and laws to look like. And so... Like I said, I think Jesus brings a lot of clarity to the subject. And my hope for us today, I'm going to scroll back to the top here. My hope for us today is that we can look at Matthew chapter 5, we can look at the law, and we can maybe have a better way of thinking about it and applying it to our lives. Um, so <clears throat> how many? Of, let's think about law for a second. How many of y'all like don't like following the rules? Just me? Oh, come on, don't lie in church. Listen, I know y'all. We don't like following the rules, it's a problem. When somebody tells me to do something, I automatically want to do the opposite of it. I haven't quite matured past that point in my life yet. <laughs> Not sure if I will. Um, but let's think about the intent behind laws, right? Because there's a, there are speed limits. And I know, once again, we live in Baltimore, N- none of y'all have ever looked at a speed limit sign. It, there's like a noticeable difference driving from out of town. And then when you hop onto the beltway, you're like, what planet did I just arrive on? Because this Nissan Altima just passed me doing like 160. <laughs> and it's always the Altima. It always is. Um, but laws exist for a reason. And I think when we as Christians look at Old Testament law, we look at it as though the purpose of the law is to give a penalty. That's how we look at it. We're like, I have to do... Or, you know, even from a New Testament standpoint, we look at the Jewish people like they had to do all these things to earn God's love. That's so terrible, but that's not what it was. Or they got the law because, you know, God wanted to show and penalize them to show that we can't keep our stuff together. And that's not the case either. But if we're not careful, we look at it that way. And so to look at it in a healthier perspective, I want you to think about what, like, what exactly is the purpose of a law, Right? Is the purpose of a speed limit just to regulate speed? Like, does the government just want to tell you to go slow because they can? The answer is probably yes. But aside from that, like, the overall intent, right, is we want safe roadways. And I really wish people that live on my street would obey those speed signs as well because I'm about to start throwing eggs at cars. Um, That being said, please don't do more than 15 down my street Um, (laughs) because I can't let my kids play. But anyway, sidebar item. That's good preaching. Maybe somebody needed to hear that. Um, But when we think about the purpose and intent of laws, it's because there's a desired outcome. There is a, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, God had a specific outcome he desired, a specific uh, culture that was trying to be created. And to get there, these rules, guidelines, and whatever you want to call them were in place. And so it was never about, the laws. It was about what the what God wanted to create in His people, but we look at it as like, man, that's a lot of rules, and we've heard it talked about a couple different times throughout the series. Most rabbis will tell you there's 613 laws in the body of the Torah, which is the first five books of your, your your Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you're like, wow, that's a lot of rules. I could never follow all those rules. Like, yeah, but what if I told you that was never the point? What if I told you God's intent was never follow all these rules so you can get to heaven? But that's how we look at it. And so when we look at Matthew chapter 5, I'm just kind of setting things up here. Uh, Jesus, man, he just lays it down. And it's honestly like you have to read through it multiple times to get get kind of what he's saying. Because it seems like he flip-flops back and forth on the issue, but he's really not. And we'll see that this morning. And so as we progress to Matthew chapter 5... Here's what's really cool about the Gospel of Matthew. And you may not know this, you may know this, uh, but Matthew is the most Jewish of all of the Gospels. And we know that because when you read it, it feels like like it feels like you're reading a Hebrew Bible, but it's even though it's coming out in Greek for the New Testament. And what Matthew's portraying from chapters one to five, it's as if Jesus is tracking and he's paralleling, Israel's journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai, which is really cool. And you're like, I don't see that. Where is that? I'm so glad you asked. It's in the program if you'd like to read it. I know I tell you all to go there every week, but it's in there. It's like ravioli. Man, I said it. I always make fun of Pastor Matt for saying that. Um, But there's a lot of parallels, and I'll list a couple, and there's more beyond what I'm going to say, but I think this just illustrates the point. So in the Gospel of Matthew, the author has intentionally arranged the beginning of the gospel to show Jesus parallel <clears throat> Jesus journey parallels Israel's journey the first out of three things is the surviving of the killing of all of the male children in exodus we talked about how when pharaoh was was scared for his power he commanded that all of the hebrew babies be thrown into the nile river it's terrible and in matthew chapter 2 herod On the same note, because he's scared for power, because he's heard of the birth of the Messiah, he commands that every male child born in a certain time frame in Bethlehem be put to death. Both Jesus and Moses survived this encounter. Number two, they go through a period of testing marked by 40. Numbers 14 has Israel being tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus gets tested for 40 days in the wilderness. It's different periods of time but they're both marked by 40, which is significant. And so, and finally, the most significant one, we talked about with the Red Sea crossing how it parallels to baptism and therefore salvation. The passing through of the waters in Exodus 14 parallels Jesus's baptism by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 4. And so all of this, you know, just to to simplify it and bring it to a point, Matthew's trying to make a point that like, hey, listen, this guy Jesus that I'm telling you about, he's a lot like Israel and he's a lot like Moses. Here's the difference. He succeeds where Israel and Moses have failed, which is a significant point to make. And these the, the people who would have been reading this in the first century or hearing it, they would have known that like Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, he said, hey, listen, this covenant thing ain't gonna work out. I already know you guys aren't going to keep it. And he, they would have they known that Israel, like, did not fulfill her vocation. She did not accomplish what the law set out for her to do. That was common knowledge across the board. And then Jesus comes along, and the writer of the Gospel of Matthew says, hey, listen, we fell short. Moses fell short. He died outside of the Promised Land. He wasn't allowed in. But this guy, Jesus, He's, he's paralleling and he's succeeding where they all fail. And in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read the, uh, the first couple verses there, Matthew chapter 5, this is kind of the crescendo as he begins the Sermon on the Mount. Who else in the Old Testament gave law and teaching from a mountain? Moses. And so Jesus in Matthew 5 is presenting himself as a new Moses, as a better Moses, the writer of Hebrews would say. And so Matthew chapter 5 It says this, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle. Somebody's life alert's going off. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, his persecuted followers. When people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they <clears throat> they persecute them. And so Jesus kicks off with the what we call the Beatitudes, and he gives all of these uh it's really upside down to how we view the world around us, right? Normally, you wouldn't look at somebody who's down on their luck. Maybe they're homeless. Maybe they're, they're just in a destitute place mentally. And Jesus kind of wraps that up, and he says, hey, listen, if you fall into these categories, like, you're actually the blessed one. Society might call you an outcast. Society might say that you don't have it together, but actually, you've got it going on, is what Jesus says, And even today, we're still like, that That doesn't quite jive, that doesn't make sense, because that's not how the world works, Jesus, don't you know? It's weird. It's upside down. Does everybody see that with me? It's not normal, which is why it's significant. So Jesus defines those who will inherit the kingdom of God not by what they do. And this is so important to what Jesus is saying, and as we springboard into the rest of the message here. He's not defining people by what they do. What were the scribes and Pharisees known for? For what they did. That's right. And what Jesus is saying is, you know, all of these, all the things that he listed are none of them. None of them are blessed because of tasks that they do. None of them. That's not what he says at all. Rather, by what they are is what dictates whether you inherit the kingdom of God or not in Jesus' mind. And so let's take a step back for a second and think about this. You're like, okay, okay. So what's the difference between, you know, how how do you draw a distinction between what I do and who I am? It's really simple, actually. This is why nobody sits in the front row. I'm spitting everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Even 9 a.m., these are like splash zone rows. It's like SeaWorld. You don't want to sit too close to the front. Um, (laughs) Oh, man, where's my wife at? She loves SeaWorld. That's for her. That's for you, babe, wherever you're at. Um, But let's think about this for a second. What's the difference between what you do and who you are? And a lot of us, like, you know, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I'm a little rough around the edges, right? I, I wear that, you know, I wear that on my sleeve because I think it's important to keep you all on your toes. It's important, right? I'm a real human. Just because I'm standing up here preaching the Bible doesn't mean I don't have struggles and shortcomings and the same experiences that you all have. I'm the same, the same as you. We're the same, but different, right? <laughs> I'm not Kenny. Thank God. Um, <laughs> I just saw you had to say that. Um but when it comes to our character and who we are as people, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were all about, I got this this thing of this list of things that I do. I pray at this certain place every time, every day. I do the same things. I give my alms and I make sure everybody sees it, right? That was the point. They did their stuff so that everybody could see it, so that they would be looked at as like, wow, that's a really good dude. That guy, Man, he's really got his stuff together. He's at the temple the same time every day. And I, you know, my schedule's too crazy. I can't even make it. And he's praying there at the wall the same time every single day. He must be a really good guy. That's what maybe people would have thought. And Jesus says, you know what? The list of things that you do actually doesn't matter because you're kind of a crappy person. Mm, we all all hear that, right? Nobody likes somebody who goes above and beyond to do things just because they want to, be looked at like they're better than everybody else. And what Jesus is saying is, like, what actually matters about you and what will actually dictate your status in the coming kingdom is not what you do, it's who you are. And what you do flows out of who you are and your motives as well. And what Jesus is trying to put focus on is he's like, listen, you guys... You guys that fall into these categories, like you that are, uh, you know, he, he goes on later to say the meek shall inherit the kingdom of God. Like these are all attributes of people who don't esteem themselves highly than other people. And so he's kind of getting at a heart issue here. And the theme that I want to kind of tie all this together with today um, is, is it's a heart issue. Like our issue with the law, our issue in life is a heart issue. It's not a hand issue. Say that with me. It's a heart issue not a hand issue. That's what we're gonna be talking about all morning because when it boils down to even Old Testament law, it's about the heart and it was never about what we do. And I think Jesus is gonna blow that apart. So he shifts gears here and he moves on to uh, verse 13 where he says, because he's, he's probably getting looked at like he's got seven heads, right? He's like, okay, let's, let's make this a little bit more practical. And he says, okay, followers, those who are listening to me, you... Are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And here's the thing about salt, right? How many of y'all like salt on your food? Okay, great. More hands than the nine a.m. Here's a weird fact about me: I put salt on nothing. If it comes with salt, great. But I like can probably count on one hand how many times I've added salt to something in the last ten years. I'm just weird. I know that's a strange thing. But anyway, forgive me, please. Um, but what Jesus is getting at here, salt in the first century served a different purpose than it serves for us today. Salt was a preservative. When you killed an animal and wanted to store its meat, you like put it in a barrel full of salt. That preserved it from rotting and decaying, and that's how you stored your food. And so what Jesus is saying is like, hey, when your salt like isn't doing what it's supposed to do, when it can no longer serve its function, it's not good for anything. And you can think about it this way. Like, when they salt the roads, which around here, we get no snow, and they still probably go through, like, a bajillion pounds of salt every year. And our vehicles get dirty, and it's awful. But, you know, when it when it gets uh, plowed on the side of the road, and it's like that nasty black gush that's, like, not, it's like salt and dirt and snow, and it just stays around forever. Like, that's no good. It's not good for anything, ever. But that's what Jesus is saying. Like when the salt is no longer good, all it's good for is to be driven over. It's not good for anything. And the crowd was probably like, yeah, Jesus, we track with that. We hate bad salt. And he's like, okay, great. Moving on. And then he says, you are a light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who were in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father, who is in heaven. And so he's like, okay, great. You track with the salt thing. That makes sense. Here's another layer. He's like, y'all don't turn lights on. And well, they didn't turn lights on, but you know, you don't light something on fire to give yourself a light to see and then cover it up. That doesn't make any sense. And they would have been like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That doesn't make sense. And so he's circling back and he's like, all of that to say, he says, let your light shine before men. Let your salt be salty, if that makes any sense at all, in such a way that they may see your good works. So what's the point of people seeing your good works? Not to glorify you, but to glorify who? God. So he's tying it all together. He's like, your, your works, the things that you do, you shouldn't do them for the sake of doing them. And you really shouldn't do them for the sake of making yourself look good. Because he said the whole purpose of you having good works to do, uh, somewhere else in the New Testament it says that we have good works prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world. Like good works are important, but what's more important is why you do them. Why do we do the things that we do? And think about it this way. How many of y'all as a parent have ever felt guilty for whatever, or as a, as a husband, whatever, husband, wife, whatever, whatever you, wherever you find yourself in life, you feel guilty for maybe something that you've done or just being absent or whatever, and you start doing things to compensate for whatever you feel like your shortcoming was. That's how we're wired as people. When we wanna make up for something, when we have shortcomings, we just start doing stuff. My wife's like, wow, why'd you do the dishes? I'm like, you know, feel bad. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, listen, I wash I wash my son's bottles every day. That's for you, babe. In case, in case you didn't notice, I want to be recognized. Um, that's right. And all the dads are like, hey, look, it's the, it's the small things. I'm like, I know you did like 70 loads of laundry and cleaned up and fed our kids, but I washed the bottles tonight. And I hope you're thankful. Um, <clears throat> but we do things. We, we feel bad about our conduct and what we're doing and we just like, we just start doing stuff. That's how we're wired. And what Jesus is saying is like, hey, listen, like when, when the rubber meets the road, when you think about who you are, your response doesn't have to be, I have to do more things to be adequate. I, I have to be better for those around me to make up for when I wasn't. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. But that would have been what the scribes and Pharisees would have been saying because their concern was the what? The law. And they were about the law for the sake of the law, not for the sake of what the law was about. So what's the purpose of the law, right? The purpose of the law was to put God's glory on display and not our own. And we can think about the fact that when God called Abraham before Israel was ever a speck in Abraham's eye, God said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless all the other nations. Like your purpose, the purpose of your lineage, the purpose of Israel is to show me to the nations and bring them back to myself. That was the purpose. And when we look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything that happens flows from that. The world needs to be redeemed to their creator. That's the point. And when we look at the law, we have to look at the law through that lens. What was the law supposed to accomplish? If the law was always about what they did, it never would have been about who their God was. That was the important piece. And we can look at that in our own lives. Like it's, you know, being a Christian, like there's there are things that we should be doing and shouldn't be doing, but that's not the the point isn't for you to be doing or not doing. Does that make sense? It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about why you do it. It's about the fact that you have a higher purpose that extends far beyond a list of of things to complete. Got to take a hydration break real quick. Maybe not. Okay, there we go. It's a heart issue, not a hand issue. Does that make sense as we move on here? So let's move on. This is where things start to get a little sticky. This is all introduction. And here's the thing. My Bible software said this message to take 30 minutes. So trying to stick to that. Might be 45, though. Uh, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says this. After all the heads are spinning, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. It doesn't sound like Jesus wants to get rid of Old Testament law, does it? No. Let's read further. He then says, to bolster that claim, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, and this is the thing that throws everything off, right? This is where it throws you for a loop when you're reading it, when he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, okay, hold up, Jesus. So you just said, don't take away from the law, don't stop teaching the law, don't stop doing the law, and then you tell me that my righteousness needs to exceed the group of people that are doing exactly that, Make that make sense. And everybody's scratching their head in the audience, Jesus' audience, not y'all, of course. Y'all, y'all know what's going on. But they're scratching their head like, how does, that, how does that make sense? How do I surpass the righteousness of those who are so good at, or at least look like they're so good at keeping the law? That look like they've got it all together. Like, how do we do that? And here's kind of, here's where the shift happens when we think about the law. For Jesus... Fulfilling the law extends far beyond the letter. And we've, we've said it a bunch where, you know, most rabbis think 613 laws was the number from Genesis to Deuteronomy. We've covered that. And so did Jesus, when he came, like, did he have a list of 613 things to complete so he could be like, okay, I did all of it that y'all couldn't do, so now I'm gonna die and resurrect and go sit, sit next to my dad again. Is that what it was? Like, did he have a, a list of tasks to complete? no. And when you think about that, we want to say yes, because Jesus fulfilled the law, right? What about all the laws that pertain exclusively to women? Did he do those? No. What about all the laws that referred specifically to work in the temple that was to be done by the Levites, a tribe that Jesus was not a part of, that he fulfilled, that he do and perform those actions and laws? No. So if it was never about completing a set list of rules for Jesus to fulfill the law, what was it about? It was about the heart, because it's a heart issue, not a what? A hand issue. That's right. Thank you so much, class. We're doing good. So when we think about the law from that standpoint, it really makes you think. When you read the Old Testament, you're like, well, wait a second. If Jesus fulfilled the law if he, if he did what the law was supposed to do, but yet did not, quote, unquote, do the laws, what does that mean for me? How do these apply to me? Which ones actually matter? Which ones don't matter? And if you're anything like me, you've studied scripture and you're like, this is a lot of stuff to do. Like, how do I, how do I keep track of all this? I don't even know what I'm sinning because I don't even know all the laws. It's weird. It's complicated, right? But what if I told you we didn't have to think about it that way? And I, I think about my first, um, my first church experience and, you know, you're very uh, legalistic preaching. And every week I'm like, dude, there's so much like adding on to what I feel like I need to do. Like at some point I'm just not going to be able to do all this stuff. Like there's too much to do. Like I can't, like I'm not perfect. I can't do this. And I'm like, that pastor must be a really good dude if he can do all these things because I sure can't. But that's because it's, it's legalism. It's not about doing the things. And I feel like some of us still, when we read the Bible, we feel like that's what God wants. We feel like God wants us to abide by and adhere to a certain set of rules just for the sake of doing it. And when Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, hey, listen, y'all, I'm coming to fulfill the law, but it's not going away. And you're like, what? What does that mean? And Jesus is like, well, I'll show you. So the law was a step in the right direction. But the law had a specific design to put on display that Israel's God was fundamentally different in how he treats his people and what he desires from, for them. I'm not going to belabor the point because there's going to be so much in the coming weeks in Exodus that will cover all the different laws of the Torah, stuff like that. It's really cool. Um, and there's a lot of similarities to, like, the Code of Hammurabi, other ancient law codes, and some scholars that are, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, skeptics, maybe, uh, they would look at that and say, "See, the Old Testament was copied from older things, because the laws are the same." Like that's a, a cool, cool opinion, dude. But um, like we're we're not thinking about it right. What What God did was He gave these guidelines, these these laws, and He said, "Hey, listen, you're gonna look like the other nations. You're gonna have a priesthood like they do, because other nations had priesthood since forever. Israel's priesthood was was not new news." They had a temple, they had a tabernacle, and what's cool is if you map out the tabernacle when they were moving through the wilderness, it looked like an Egyptian war camp. The cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, like cherubim are Egyptian throne guardians. Like there, there's not a whole lot that's unique to their, their religious practices, if that makes sense. But what was unique was the point that was conveyed. And we'll see this again in, more in the coming weeks, but I just want to touch on it for a, a second. The point was that God created and treated humans with dignity. The point was that he was different than all the other gods. He required no human sacrifice. He required no abuse and religious rituals. No, his standard was was preserving and valuing human life and human dignity. And that is displayed, that is put on display by the laws of the Torah. That was the idea behind the law, to show the world, hey, I'm different. I'm built different, right? (laughs) To be, you know, whatever. Nobody else thought that was funny. I did. Um, But that was the the idea. It was a step in the right direction. What it never was, it was never, here's a perfect eternal list of rules and guidelines to live by for every people from every time forever. That's never what it was. And you say, well, how could you say something like that? That doesn't make any sense. I thought that the 10 commandments were like it. Well, let's, let's see what Jesus has to say. In Matthew 19, Jesus says this. Well, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother And be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, It has not been this way. So here we have an example of Jesus. The Pharisees come to him and they say, hey, what do you think about this, Jesus? This law says that, you know, you can write a certificate of divorce for pretty much any reason. And Jesus is like, yeah, it does say that. But guess what? The law was never God's full intent. And then he pulls from the creation story where he says, don't you know that after God had put his stamp of approval on the world and said, this is very good, He did that, and he said what he put his stamp of approval on wasn't a list of laws, but it was his intent. God's intent was one woman, one man together, period. That's the intent, that's the standard. And Jesus often used the Eden story to portray the ultimate ideal, because in Jesus' mind, the law falls short on that because of the compromises that it makes. And God made provision through the law for failure. But guess what? just because God makes provision for failure because he knows we're going to fail, that doesn't mean it's the standard. You guys tracking with me on that? It's crazy stuff. Jesus literally blows it up in their face. He's like, yeah, I'm just glad you feel that way, but if you read, like, the first page of your Bible, you'll see what God really wanted. What God really wanted was humans living in fellowship with him in his space, being a part of the divine and and making the rest of the world as good as Eden was, through a union between one man and one woman and making a family. And in Jesus' mind, anything outside of that was a perversion. But in a, from a law perspective, they had to have laws about divorce because that's life. People get divorced. In a society, you can't just say, like, no, this can't happen because that's not, it's not the best rule of thumb for something like that. There have to be compromises when it comes to having a, a, a law code for a society. Because the ideal, we don't live in a perfect world. Do y'all know that? And so in Jesus' mind, he's like, y'all talk about divorce. He's like, look, it happens. Like it's, you know, Moses made provision for it, but God's intent wasn't that. And he's like, just because there's provision doesn't mean that's the standard. And I think in a lot of our lives, we take this, this principle and we apply it in different ways. As, as though the, the exception to the rules should be the standard in our lives, right? We accept mediocrity with our, with our children, with our marriages because like, well, it's just kind of the way it is. There's a lot of other people like that. You know what I mean? We're not, we're not, we're, we're fine. We're doing good. You make, you make what was made provision for the standard. And that seems fine for a while, but at a certain point, sin rears its ugly head and you're like, oh man, I really should have. Like when I was raising my kids, when I was building my marriage, I really should have strived for what God wanted, not for what what seemed to be okay because of what the culture said. That's tough and when we when we're making decisions when we're doing things we can't we can't look at life through that filter of saying you know what it's not like my standards aren't like top tier but like it's pretty okay right you know it's like when I'm building a motorcycle and like you know you strip a couple bolts out like the rest of them will hold it <laughs> which is true <laughs> it's not ideal <laughs> but it works and Jason knows you've been a part of pretty much all of my builds you know. That carburetor might not be tuned to perfection, but the bike runs. It's good enough to sell on a Facebook Marketplace. Funny story <laughs> about that. <laughs> so always be mindful of your Facebook Marketplace transactions because every motorcycle I've sold to somebody, I have remained in contact with said person and bump into them when I go to, like, tracks and things. And I'm like, I'm really glad you're happy with your purchase. I'm really glad I tried my best to build a, a good bike because you'd probably be really mad at me right now if I didn't. But... Anyway, that's a sidebar. Um, God made provision for failure. That does not change the standard. Don't let your standard be failure. Failure is inevitable, but it, it shouldn't be your like your first option. That shouldn't be your first thing that you go to. So let's talk about keeping the law. <clears throat> so we've gotten this far, right? And I hope, I hope this has brought some clarity so far to maybe how we should be thinking about law and and what Jesus is saying, Um, but where the rubber meets the road for us is like, okay, that's all fine and good. How does that impact my life? How does that affect my day-to-day? How does that affect my behavior? How do we keep the law, so to say, to use biblical terminology? So first of all, to be Torah-abiding, has anybody ever heard the term, I'm a Torah-abiding Christian? Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay, I'm really glad cuz usually that term means hey, I'm better than you and I keep a bunch of random rules that you don't that are not relevant anymore. <laughs> and Paul and Paul had an interesting way of thinking about this. He's like, "Listen, he said, you know, for Jews and Gentiles gathering, he's like, "Jews, if keeping your feasts and keeping those sacred days makes you feel closer to the Lord, you should do that. But you shouldn't hold other people to the same standard if that's not where they're at." And so but in our context, as a 21st century believer, to truly be Torah-abiding, we need to abide in Christ. Does that make sense? Why? Because he's the one who fulfilled the Torah. He's the one who achieved the desired outcome of the law. Let's read, I have an excerpt in the program from a book that I read. Um, but basically, Jesus says in John 5:46, he says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. And so when we read our Old Testament, there's just something about it that points to to Jesus being the solution, the end all be all for what the law points to. And you say, how do you say that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, if you read Deuteronomy, and we talked about this earlier on, but like Moses looks at the Israelites with his final speech before he dies, and he says, hey, listen, you guys aren't going to keep the covenant. You guys are going to suffer the consequences and go into exile, but... He says, God will raise up another. He will raise up a a prophet like no other prophet before him, and he's going to be the one that restores what God actually wants in this arrangement. And then we hear about uh, in Jeremiah where he says there's going to be a new covenant that comes about where the law is not written on tablets of stone, but it's written on the hearts of those who follow Yahweh. And so when we think about the whole Old Testament and what that points to, Jesus said, it points to me. And therefore, to fulfill it, to fulfill what the law is, it's not about me doing it, so to speak. It's about me being what it was supposed to point to, which is why Matthew spends all this time saying, hey, listen, Jesus is a faithful Israelite. Jesus is a prophet like unto Moses, but far greater. Like They're making all of these points to say, hey, this guy, this Jesus is the one who's supposed to fulfill and bring an end to the covenant that we could not keep. Because he is the desired outcome. Jesus is what, what everything culminates into. And so if we abide in Christ, his gospel will perform the heart-changing work because it's not a heart issue. It's a, or wait a minute, it's a heart. It's a heart I don't even know what I'm preaching about today. It's a heart issue, not a, right. And so if we want our heart to be changed, How many of y'all know that you just can't change the way that you feel about stuff sometimes, right? That's reality, right? Those of you who struggle with how you feel about certain people or certain things, or maybe you have anxiety, and you're like, I don't want to feel this way about X, Y, Z, but I can't help it. Jesus comes along and he says, listen, you can't change that, but I can. Through the power of my gospel, I can fundamentally change who you are, and how you react and respond to the world around you. The gospel will perform the heart changing that allows us to live out the two greatest commandments. How many of y'all know what the two greatest commandments are? Cool, like one of you. Great, just Miss Cindy. No, I'm just kidding. I saw your hand, Miss Tanya. I see you back there. Um, Jesus says this in Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, who asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law. And these people are always like poking Jesus to see how he feels about things, which is hilarious to me. And Jesus answers pretty plain. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. So Jesus is tying these two things together. These two commandments are inseparable. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many of y'all have ever had one of those neighbors that you just can't love that way? <laughs> okay? And Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Anyone's claim to achieving the law's desired outcome hung on these two things in the mind of Jesus. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? And as Jesus explains, he says, the second one is just like it. As in, they can't be separated from each other because guess what? You cannot love your neighbor well without Jesus being on the forefront of how you're living your life. And you cannot love God while also saying, I don't love other people because God loves all the other people. And so Jesus is like, these two are like, boom, they are mixed together. It is like peanut butter and jelly or whatever else you like on your peanut butter sandwich. I don't know. But they they go together. They can't be separated. And so when we look at this to Jesus, it all culminates together in this idea of like, hey, Yeah, you've got all these laws and regulations and ordinances and feasts and things. He's like, but what it really boils down to is do you love your creator, your God, Yahweh of Israel, Jesus? And do you love your neighbor? Do you love those around you? If you're doing those things well, the other stuff is really just on the periphery. It really, not that it doesn't matter, but it's like if you're doing those things, it has achieved its desired outcome. And so practical application of these laws Paul and many others in the New Testament take this approach where they apply different laws in the Old Testament, but they apply them in different ways that maybe you wouldn't have thought that they were meant to. And I'll give you an example. 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says this, the elders who rule well, this is a church context, we are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so Paul takes this this law from the Old Testament that literally means, hey, while your ox is plowing your field and collecting your grain, don't put a muzzle on his face because if he's plowing and working for you, the least you could do is let the poor guy eat some grain off the ground. Does that make sense? Like, that makes total sense to me. And he applies that to preachers and teachers in the New Testament. He said, listen, you know, if if somebody is laboring for you and they're working for for you, like, they should be paid. They should be taken care of. They got to eat too. That's what Paul is saying. And then he goes on to say, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Paul didn't make that up. That's how the Israelite court system worked. If you were brought on trial for something, there had to be two or three corroborating witnesses for whatever the crime was. And Paul is taking these things and he's applying the wisdom of those laws to the context of his day. And so to Paul and the writers of the New Testament, the laws of the Old Testament, they weren't just old outdated things. They were they contained wisdom that could be applied to all different areas of our lives, and that's really what Proverbs is. How many of y'all like Proverbs? <laughs> Proverbs was basically written by somebody who meditated a lot on the Torah, and they they you know they presented their wisdom findings basically. At least that's how I like to think about it. I think there's merit for that. <laughs> but when we look at the Old Testament, and it's like stuff like um, you know there's laws like when you build a house, you should put parapet walls on your roof because you know you don't want anybody to fall off your roof and die that is a law in the old testament i don't have a flat roof so i can't put parapet walls on my roof but does that so does that law apply to me no but what does apply to me is the principle that like hey you should go above and beyond to make sure that like you know there nobody dies carelessly on your property like that's a fair you know like if you have a lake or something like you should put a sign up like hey this lake is deep because you value human life that's the principle like, it's, it's stuff like that that, like, you know, to us, we're like, oh, it doesn't apply to me. Like, well, no, but yes, yes, it does. And so the law for us is not, it's not a list of things. It's like, hey, you better do these things. Or, hey, only this group of them applies to you specifically. No, we should be reading it and meditating on it. I think about what the psalmist said where he said, I, you know, I love your law, Lord. I meditate in it day and night. Like, King David was was just in it, all day, every day thinking about it and what he was getting from it wasn't, I'm gonna memorize this list of things that I have to do. He was like, no, this is like the law, the Torah puts on display, God's wisdom and his love for his people. That's what it is. And when we look at how Jesus handled the law, it was it was the same mentality. The law wasn't a burden, but the law did have a desired outcome. And Jesus thought, and was right about the fact that he was the desired outcome of the law. He is the end-all, be-all. It all points to him and the work that he is, was, and is going to accomplish in our world. So does that, are we tracking together as we circle the wagons here? So just to kind of sum all that up, Old Testament laws, as we go about the next couple weeks, it's really confusing. There's a lot of foreign things in it. But that doesn't mean that it's not profitable. Right, scripture. Uh, the Bible says scripture is profitable. All scripture is profitable, even the obscure stuff that we don't understand. And so when we look at it, man, I really, like, let's join together and let's talk in our small groups. Like, man, this is some really weird stuff. Let's talk about it. What kind of wisdom is being portrayed about God through this, this obscurity that I'm looking at? And so as we kind of come to a close here, just a couple practical takeaways for you to take home. We got communion today. I don't want to take too long. I'm about 10 minutes ahead of schedule from where I usually am, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. Um, But it's not about what I do. It's about my heart, right? Because it's a heart issue, not a... There we go. And as we circle the wagon here, takeaways number one, focus less on the outside and focus more on the inside. And that's, you know, we say that all the time, right? And they say that even in not Christian circles, but the practicality and the relevance of it is the same. What you are on the inside matters so, so, so much. Psalm 51.6 says this, Behold, you desire, God desires truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. God really cares about who you are deep down inside. What he doesn't care so much about is the front that we put on every day of our lives in front of other people. Focus less on the outside, more on the inside. Number two, prioritize Your vocation. Matthew 5, 16, we'll circle back around to that. Jesus says this, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The purpose of of doing good things is not to make ourselves look good or to put ourselves on a pedestal. It is to make our God look good. And if we make him look good, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will what? Long phrase. He will draw all men unto who? Himself. There we go. So let your light shine. Put your your vocation on the front end of how we live our lives. Your vocation as a believer is to show Jesus to the world. And he can't be shown through a facade. He can't be shown through a lack of love towards our neighbors. And by neighbors, I mean each other, everybody. Number three, and this is the last one. Seek wisdom in obscure places. If there's anything that I hope this has shown us today, it's that the word of God is so just, you know, it's like what, uh, what Hebrews said, it's quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And when we go to the Lord, when we enter our quiet time, where we read and we're engaging with the Lord, like when something sounds weird, just meditate on it. Just get in there and say, Lord, I know there's something here for me that you have. Show it to me because that's the magic of Bible study. The magic of Bible study is not being a big brain know-it-all. The magic of Bible study is allowing the spirit to work in you and and just to, to move in you and show you things as you engage with God through his word. So focus less on the outside, more on the inside. Prioritize your vocation. Seek wisdom in obscure places.
0: Thank you for watching and joining us for Our Church Online. I pray this experience was just what you needed today. If you made a decision for the Lord to follow Christ, or if the Lord did something in your heart that was special today, we would love to hear about it. Post it in the comments. Send us a message, and we'll reach out to you. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.